There's almost nothing more heartbreaking and frustrating than unanswered questions when someone takes their own life, even more so when there's no note, no reasoning behind the choice. But when a mysterious death points to something more sinister than suicide, where can a family go to find the truth? My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. Our case today begins in Bluefish Point near Manly's North Head in New South Wales, Australia. Arguably, it is one of the most beautiful locations on the planet. Think about the water as blue as the sky on a cloudless summer day. The scenery is nothing short of heavenly. This is the southeast part of the country, inside the Sydney Harbor National Park. At the base of a 160-foot cliffside, on a warm summer day, a body is found. Investigators on scene immediately call it suicide. The family, however, believes there's been foul play. But as always, there's more to the story than meets the eye. You know, I often receive emails from families who've lost a loved one in a mysterious way. The person is reported to have committed suicide, but to the family, it just can't be. They cannot believe it could be anything but murder. Without fail, the family member reaching out wants me to get involved, look into the case, and find out the truth. And it's one of the harder aspects of this job, telling a family that after doing a bit of research and making a few calls, I too believe that their loved one took their own life. I feel for these people immensely. A life has been cut short. The person leaves you without a word or an answer. The family is faced with having to accept the reality that they took their own life, and they'll never know why. Phelps, do you feel like it's always disbelief and denial when this family member can't accept that a loved one has chosen to die? 99 times out of 105, it probably is. Mm. But there are some cases when it sure isn't. And let me just say, that's Catherine Law, my producer, and you will hear her from time to time on Crossing the Line with M. William Phelps. Years ago, I was contacted by someone who believed that American Scott Johnson, whose body was found at the base of that Australian cliff, did not take that fatal leap himself, that he was pushed. So a while back, I began to look more closely at this case, which received international attention when it broke. And for the past three decades, it has remained a mystery. But let's go back to the morning of Saturday, December 10, 1988. Yeesh, the 80s. (laughs) The seasons there are flipped from us here in North America, keep in mind. So it's the peak of the summer season in Australia. 27-year-old Scott Johnson, considered by many to be a math genius, is in Australia completing work on his PhD. He's a very good-looking guy, extremely fit, kind, thoughtful, with a pleasant demeanor. Scott was a mountain climber and a long-distance runner who didn't smoke cigarettes or drink alcohol. In addition to his studies, he's living in Australia because his partner lives there. 
Scott is by all accounts a happy, highly intelligent gay man with a bright future and whatever he wants to do within his chosen field. Scott was considered a virtuoso mathematician, which meant he was one step above your average math genius. He has been described as having a passionate yet, quote, unassuming presence, end quote. I mean, this guy, I can't stress this enough. When I say math genius, he was like above those who were math geniuses, all right? He was special in that regard. Almost like an artist. Exactly, exactly. He, he got numbers like nobody got numbers. I mean, me, numbers, when I open QuickBooks, <laughs> I, my stomach, uh, I want to throw up. Anyway, Scott is respected by his peers, adored by his professors, and couldn't be closer to his loving, caring, and supportive family. Still, despite the support of his family, being a gay man anywhere in the world in 1988 was not easy. You kept it to yourself. And while it may be hard to believe now, homosexuality had only been decriminalized in New South Wales in the mid-80s, just a few years before Scott arrived at Cambridge University. As in many parts of the world at this time, police did very little to protect gay people from being the target of bullying, harassment, abuse, or so-called gay bashing. So the idea that a hate crime could have been committed when Scott Johnson's body was found at the bottom of that cliff was not a motivator for law enforcement in any respect of the word, either because, number one, they truly believed his death was a suicide, not. Two, they didn't want to spend the time to solve the case. Or three, because they simply didn't give a shit. I'm going to go with three. Yeah. And Phelps, this actually makes me think of West Hollywood, which is pretty famously like a gay hub in Los Angeles. And for, you know, a long time, it was part of the city of L.A. But anybody who lives in L.A. knows that the police response is often extremely lackadaisical and even more so in the 80s in the case of gay people who were attacked or hate crimes that happened. And so West Hollywood, because it was so so filled with gay people, they actually separated from the city of Los Angeles. And now they have their own police department, their own fire department, all that stuff. And now their response time is so much better. And it's just, it's a much more inclusive and welcoming place and a lot safer. Well, it's good to see that something was done with respect to what was happening, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. I knew gay people in the 80s and I recall very distinctively one guy who was beaten and robbed Mm. and he would not go to the police. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. would not go to the police. Yeah. And that was for fear of losing his job for all all kinds of different reasons. But completely. Yeah. It's 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 maddening, really. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in this area where Scott's nude body was found at the bottom of those cliffs at Northhead was known as a cruising ground for gay men. In the twisted logic of the day, the fact that Scott was gay and found dead in such a location was almost immediately thought to be his fault in some way. It's the sort of victim-blaming mentality we are only now, 30 years later, starting to realize is not only hateful, but never helps solve a case. Remember, if you're in law enforcement, your job is to, you know. Solve cases? Well, your job (laughs) is to uphold the law. Yeah, and serve and protect. Without judgment. Anybody who knows me or my work knows I have zero tolerance 
for hatred of any kind, but even more so when the marginalized or minorities are involved. To think that one human being has the authority or the right to tell another human being how to live their life or that they should be judged because of the choices they make or the lifestyle they lead is just incomprehensible to me. Live your life, shut your mouth, and allow others to do as they wish. Love people. It's easier. Life is too short. Here, here, Phelps. Here, here. Soapbox down. <laughs> down. So let's take a break and you'll see how this case transforms and who's really to blame for Scott's death. On that December day in 1988, two local men along with one of their sons were out spearfishing near the bottom of the cliffs when they came across Scott's body. His corpse had been torn up and thrashed around the rocks where the ocean crashed up against the seashore. At the top of the cliff, 160 feet above, were his clothes, neatly folded and laid out along with a watch, a $10 bill, and a plastic pouch, his student ID, and his sneakers. The way his belongings were carefully placed led one to believe Scott might have taken the time to undress and place his things in a neat pile. Doesn't sound like somebody who's getting ready to do themselves in. I don't know. There was no note, as one might expect, if this was truly a suicide, especially from a guy with the education and, I think this is important, the thought process of a mathematician. This guy thinks in numbers. He calculates things. This guy was close, close to his family. His family knew he was gay. If he was going to do this, he would, he would have told them. Mm-hmm. Police showed up after the discovery of Scott's body. They moved his personal items before any crime scene photos had been taken. They did very little, if any, investigating. They got a hold of his boyfriend, and they were told Scott had spent the night at his house. They asked a few questions of the boyfriend, who told them Scott once revealed to him that he had considered, a long time ago, jumping from the Golden Gate Bridge. He had mentioned to his partner that he was concerned about the growing AIDS epidemic and, of course, had once considered suicide by jumping from a high place. Then came standard procedure, a coroner's inquest. It listed several factors that led authorities to determine almost immediately that Scott had committed suicide. His folded clothes indicated premeditation. His body showed no defensive wounds. According to several published reports, the area of Bluefish Point where Scott's belongings were located was not an uncommon place for people to take a fatal leap off the cliffs. So that's everything that they kind of calculate to say, yeah, he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. Within all of that, if police had done just one bit of checking, they would have encountered several factors that could have led them to conclude this was not just a simple case of suicide, as they had believed. For one, there had been a stabbing not long before Scott's death in the same area where his clothes were found. Second, several miles away, there had been a series of hate crimes against gay men. Scott's family was, of course, shocked and horrified by the news. But the worst part of it all for them was how much they disbelieved Scott's death 
had been a suicide. It made no sense to them whatsoever. There had been zero indication that he was depressed or suicidal in any way. To the contrary, of course, we could argue for hours that those who commit suicide do not act a specific way in the days leading up to their deaths. Right. Of course, we know that mental illness and depression look different in everyone. And there's often those anecdotal stories as well about people who are close to suicide, who have decided to commit suicide, who their families say, like, all of a sudden he was so happy or, you know, she was so lighthearted. And it's because they've made the decision to take their own life. And so there's a sense of relief for them. But it's so different for everybody. And I mean, we could devote a half hour to talking about that. Yeah. The point I'm making here is, for the sake of this episode, let's say, let's leave that argument about appearances alone and focus on Scott's Mm -hmm. family and their utter refusal to believe he could take his own life because they know him best, right? Right. Scott's brother, Steve, had the hardest time accepting the label of suicide. His beloved brother, his best friend, with so much promise in life and his career, and a lust for life itself, I should say, how could he kill himself? The two had been so close, Steve felt he would have known if something was going on with Scott. Yeah. And and look, not long before his death, he had applied for permanent residency in Australia. See, that's not a process you're going to start if you don't think you're going to be around for very long. Like, Just think of all the like paperwork and red tape and bureaucracy. When you investigate, right? <laughs> that's the key. When you investigate this, it begins to look like, well, this guy probably didn't kill himself. Yeah. I mean, on the same day he disappeared, Scott explained to the professor supervising his PhD that he had made a significant breakthrough on the math problem that he had been fretting over for quite a while, one which had been frustrating him greatly. He was ecstatic about the discovery he'd made and his future. The way he explained it, Macquarie University professor Ross Street told the New York Times, it sounded like he had the whole thing in his head. Now, I will say they have heard this same type of quote from people in cases I know of where there was no question it was suicide. Yet here, there are several points we need to make about what transpired on that cliff. For one, the number of people who had supposedly jumped off those cliffs within the years leading up to Scott Johnson's death and immediately after were staggering. When you're investigating something like this and you live in an area, it's not only your job to be aware of these trends and things that are going on, but it's also like, how could you not know? I mean, just from gossip around town. Exactly. They knew. Yeah. I mean, they knew. It was easier to just say he killed himself, you know. Yeah. Then we Mm -hmm. don't have to get into the whole hate crime thing and the newspapers. Yeah. I think any investigator worth their Vegemite would have to agree, (laughs) someone should have noticed the trend. There were 88 men in total with suspicious deaths in Sydney between 1976 and 2000, and nearly half of those strange deaths had occurred by 1988, the year Scott died. That's crazy. And to not see a pattern of some sort, if you are policing the right way, it's just ignorant. If nothing else, that number of deaths in such a confined space should have given top law enforcement pause to look at it all a little closer. Something was going on up there, that is for sure. The first responder on the scene when Scott's body was discovered later said he wasn't aware the area Scott had fallen from 
was a hookup spot. If cops had only asked around, they would have known the culture of the area was that men went up there to hook up. And the signal that you were available was to strip naked, fold your clothes neatly, and lay out in the sun, effectively waiting for someone to come along. Phelps, this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning about in the 80s and even in the 90s and beyond, you know, a lot of people had to keep their sexuality a secret, either because of their jobs or, you know, family or whatever else. And in this sort of situation, it's like, okay, so you're laying out, you're nude. If someone's interested and they know that's the code, great, you can hook up. Otherwise, you can just say, oh, no, man, I'm sunbathing. I'm sunbathing. It's kind of like how in the 50s, lesbians, especially in the cities in Chicago and New York, they would carry a copy of this lesbian pulp novel, Bebo Brinker. Or, you know, somebody might say like, oh, are you a friend of Dorothy? Which was this code, Dorothy like the Wizard of Oz, because, of course, every gay person loves Judy Garland, just to generalize. (laughs) But they would ask each other, like, are you a friend of Dorothy? Which if someone was not a friend of Dorothy, they'd just say, no, I don't know her, you know, but it was a safe way for people to interact. I I didn't know those things. Yeah. I'd never heard those things. And it's, you know, it just shows the culture of fear. Yeah, completely. I mean, this was still when there wasn't really a good name for AIDS. A lot of people were still calling it, even on the news, they were calling it gay cancer. Yeah. It it just, it was so foreign to a lot of people. So people were so judgmental about it. Something else I want to unpack here, too, is, you know, we know that Scott had a partner that he cared for and that he loved, but he was up in this hookup spot. So what was he doing up there? Right. Right. I think to some people it might seem like, oh, was he cheating on his boyfriend or that sort of thing? Right. But of course, in a lot of relationships, there's a different attitude around what commitment means and partnership means. Yeah, we don't know the details of if it was an open relationship or where. Yeah. So, you know, these are all things a cop should be thinking. Exactly. Not not a producer and a podcaster, but. (laughs) But here we are. And, And it goes back to that one word, judgment. You mm-hmm. cannot judge a victim if you are going to investigate their death properly and get to the truth. And it just makes me think of the concept of the less dead, which is what police would often call sex workers or, yep. you know, it's like, oh, well, they yep. lived a high risk. Marginalized. Exactly. Marginalized communities. They lived a high risk lifestyle. It's their fault. They got killed. It's not. Guess what? The the penalty for prostitution or sex work or being gay or whatever or stepping out on your partner, even if he was, which he probably wasn't, but even if he was, it's not death. It's not murder. That's not the penalty for that. My sister-in-law would fall into that category. That's how her murder was mm-hmm. looked at at first. Mm-hmm. I was like, she was a drug addict. So, okay, well, but no, there's still a person. They still deserve and have all the same rights as anyone else. Yeah. Their deaths deserve to be looked into and solved. The other thing here is there had been a storm recently as well. And when they went up to look at that area, which we can call a crime scene, police Mm -hmm. did not find any sign of a struggle. But why? I mean. But when you don't take pictures. (laughs) And, you know, why would they find evidence of a struggle? Uh, The fact that there was a storm deletes that possibility. Right. Right. And this area is large and it's spread out. Moreover, it had been some time since his body had been on the beach area below. 
In that line of thought, police never secured the areas as crime scenes. They took a look, considered how many people had previously taken a suicidal leap and deduced that Scott had done the same. A man with a stellar career ahead of him, a literal star mathematician who could have chosen any university in the world to complete his PhD, who had not mentioned anything about being depressed or even mildly unhappy. To the contrary, actually. A man who had just applied for citizenship, who had a great relationship with his family and love in his life, yet still they blindly assumed it was a suicide even without the presence of a note that he had stripped off all his clothes, folded them, placed his watch and other belongings neatly nearby, and then willingly jumped to his death. But when you look closer, when you begin to see the details, you see something else entirely. In the years that followed Scott Johnson's horrific death, more men, and this is so important to point out because it was only men, were found dead at the bottom of those same cliffs. There is sometimes an inherent bias involved in the deaths and murders of gay people when it comes to law enforcement. Inherent bias is simply what it sounds like. Quote, underlying factors or assumptions that skew viewpoints of the subject under discussion. We can easily exchange that last word, discussion, for investigation. Sometimes it's intentional, but in many cases, it's not. Often, it's just there in the person's subconscious. As we mentioned earlier, Scott's brother Steve never believed his brother killed himself. Steve has called Scott his best friend, his closest friend, and is on record saying Scott's death stopped his life. Steve worked very hard and scored big time in the world of tech. He made a lot of money in the years that followed his brother's death, let's just say. (laughs) A lot. But he never gave up on finding out the truth about what happened to Scott. In fact, his newfound wealth afforded him the opportunity to act on his suspicions and the love he had for his brother. In 2005, a report surfaced. An inquest focused specifically on what was called the Sydney Cliff deaths. And it struck Steve so deeply, he decided to find someone to look into Scott's death as potentially part of a deadly trend happening in this area of Sydney. In 2007, Steve hires investigative journalist Daniel Glick to look into Scott's death. Glick had worked at Newsweek for 13 years. His byline resume is just too extensive to read off, but trust me when I say that Steve was hiring the best of the best. Glick had done reporting for every major news organization and periodical and appeared on dozens of major networks, from Rolling Stone to the Times of London to Wilderness Magazine to 60 Minutes. The guy knows how to dig up information. In addition to Glick, Steve sought out Martha Coakley who was the attorney general in Massachusetts at one time. Coakley's firm took on Scott's case pro bono after learning about it. Glick's goal was to dig up police documents, interview people, and find out the particulars of the cases, including Scott's. While Coakley would work to get Scott Johnson's death investigation reopened, everyone on board believed that Scott's death was murder, a vicious hate crime aimed at him because of who he was. Over the years since Scott's death, feelings about homosexuality in Australia, just like here in the States, for the most part, remarkably changed. 
people generally accepted that gay people were no different. Their lives were as important as any other. The LGBTQ community had a presence and a voice, and overall, a majority of people have accepted that gay people have been treated more than unfairly and even violently for decades. And you know what? It needed to stop. So the sentiment of law enforcement in Sydney now worked in favor of Steve Johnson's plight to get answers in his brother's death. As soon as Glick hit the ground in Sydney, he met with sources and details began to emerge. One fact struck me from an article Glick wrote about his work in Scott Johnson's case titled Close to the Edge. Scott's body was so disfigured from the 160-foot fall and being beaten up by the waves that there could have been no way of knowing if his body contained any defensive wounds or evidence of murder upon a cursory inspection. Fact after fact that Glick uncovered led to one thing. Yes, Scott had been murdered, no doubt about it. When Glick checked the local paper archives for stories near the time of Scott's death, he found scores of gay bashings, supposed suicides, and obvious murders of members of the queer community. There was one, actually, as I was looking into this. I mean, it's it's stuff that you can't even... Ignore. You can't ignore. I mean, one, and this horrified me, one man was killed with a bow and arrow. Literal hunted. hunting. Yes. I mean, it's just down. sickens you. Yeah. By the end of 2007, New South Wales police and the state coroner were declassifying Scott's death as a suicide and reclassifying it as an open case. Glick's stellar work in the case, along with Steve's determination to see to the end that his brother's death would not be forgotten, had led to a reinvestigation. Then the momentum stalled. Sure, the investigation was reopened and the new findings indicated that Scott's death was not a suicide, but the fact remained that he could have fallen or simply been blown over by the wind, as often happens along the bluffs. It did not necessarily mean he was killed by a bigoted murderer. But this is a true crime podcast, so you know where we're going with this. (laughs) So for five more years, there were no answers for Scott Johnson's family. Then something happened. That changed everything. In some ways, it seems that murder can take many forms, but I don't necessarily think this is true. Premeditated first-degree murder for me is fairly straightforward. Somebody decides they want you dead. They take steps to make that happen. Motive and reasoning are different things. As an investigator, you have to walk into any suspicious death, And a fall from a 160-foot cliff would qualify immediately, I would think, Mm -hmm. without any sort of bias or preconceived notion or personal feelings. You are not there to judge either the murderer or the victim. You are simply there to find out what happened. In 2017, after a third inquest into Scott Johnson's murder, the New South Wales police and coroner determined that, quote, Mr. Johnson fell from the clifftop as a result of actual or threatened violence by unidentified persons who attacked him because they perceived him to be homosexual, end quote. Hooray. They finally get there, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. That is a quote directly from the New South Wales Police Government website. And despite how trite it might sound on face value, it was a huge statement. In the beginnings of justice for Scott, 
and so many others who were harassed and killed just because of who they were. Scott Johnson's family had spoken up for Scott and finally, finally, they were being heard. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, you are going to hear from Scott's killer himself. Following the third inquest in 2017, a special investigative team from Australia was called in to look into Scott Johnson's death. Interviews were conducted. By December 2018, a $100,000 reward for information in the case was increased to $1 million. Steve, Scott's brother, took a trip to Sydney to assist any way he could and see to it that the investigation was kept on track. He also added another $1 million to the reward, which now totaled $2 million. Wow. This did not sit well with investigators, who referred to Steve as the, quote, bloody billionaire trying to take over the homicide squad. Really? Really? I mean, come on. He's getting shit solved. I mean, the guy just, he has money and he wants his brother's murder solved. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to take Mm -hmm. over the fucking homicide squad for fuck's sake. And a million dollars is like enough to get people's attention. Like you might not say something about something for a hundred K, but you might for a million. Absolutely. I mean, look, if somebody knows something, $2 $2 million, it's going to change your life. They can leave town with yeah. that. You know? Yep, they sure can. They could call him whatever they wanted to. Steve was determined to find his brother's killer. He didn't give a shit what they were saying about him. A specialty unit within the Australian government's law enforcement got involved. Strike Force Wellsford. That sounds very exciting. Very intense. I mean, very intense. It sounds almost to me like Team America. Right, exactly. Right, like Team Australia, World Police. Yes. I think it's meant to sound intense, but in reality, you know, this is just a special investigative unit. Yeah, but it's cool because, like, there's all these different new units that they're putting on this case because it actually matters to them now. It's getting all this attention. Yeah, it's well, it's getting international pressure, right? And they're not going to look like, you know, kangaroos here. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's not going to happen with them. Crime Stoppers tip line was set up. The belief was, if it had been a hate crime, which by now everyone believed it was, the murderer would have undoubtedly bragged about it afterward to someone. And I love this train of law enforcement thought. Think like your intended target. What would he do? Well, if he was to murder a gay man for being gay, he would no doubt want to tell like-minded people what he had done, right? That is the case with these people. Like, they want to brag about this. It makes me think of that word, bogans. It's like the Australian version of rednecks, and they're just dirtbags who do shit like this. They're like bigots. They're sort of like the kind of people who would fly a Confederate flag, but in Australia. Right, right. And that yeah. that's who we're talking about here that they're going after, really. Mm-hmm. As other falling deaths were investigated, a pattern began to present itself. Gay men were being killed in one specific area of Sydney. And investigators knew that if two or more people were involved and they had a falling out over the years, that $2 million reward might just entice him to come forward and effectively drop a dime on the culprits. Leads began to come in about Scott's murder. One in particular caught the eye of investigators. A woman, 51-year-old Helen White, the ex-wife of a Sydney man named Scott Philip White 
wrote an anonymous letter to the police regarding a conversation she had with her husband when they were married about what she called the, quote, pufta bashings, end quote. Right. And pufter being nasty slang for gay men in the Commonwealth countries. As times had changed, Helen White had seen a 2019 TV show about gay hate murders and decided it was time to step forward and tell police all she knew about her ex-husband. She could not stay quiet any longer. This is exactly what they had hoped for when they put that reward out. And it's exactly why we do this kind of work, because times do change and people's minds do change. And this woman seeing this TV show might have changed her entire mind about whether to come forward or not, whether to even know that she should. And she she now is divorced from the guy. Right. So she now she wants to she wants to give it to this guy. Right. Right. And this is Mm -hmm. a way to give it to him. (laughs) She first came forward and simply admitted to that anonymous letter. Police started questioning her. It was back in 2008, she explained, when her then-husband began bragging to her about attacking gay men in the area where Scott was murdered. And after reading about the push to reopen Scott's case and reinvestigate, she said she decided to just ask her husband one day, point blank, did you kill the math genius American studying in Sydney? Her husband's only response, she said, was, quote, the only good pufta is a dead pufta. End quote. I would say that's a yes. She asked again more pointedly, to which he responded, quote, It's not my fault that dumb C word ran off the cliff. End quote. She responded, It is, if you chased him. The couple had six children together. She said White would often brag to the children as they grew about his gay bashing during the 80s and 90s. So gross. Father of the year material right there. I'll tell you that. Right. Freaking scumbag. But I mean, that's that's those guys. They're proud of their bigotry. They go to the bar. They don't shut up about it, which, you know, you hope makes them very catchable. Yeah. I mean, here's a case that's from the 80s that we're in 2020. And this case is being solved. Mm-hmm. And so you make an incredibly astute point that we're talking about a class of people here that are bigots. Mm-hmm. In 2022, Scott Philip White was brought in for questioning about the murder of Scott Johnson back in 1988, 32 years prior. White was a tired-looking, overweight, balding, bitter, and crass man who had lived a rough life of drinking and fighting. Steve, who never gave up believing that his brother had been murdered, posted a Facebook message shortly after scumbag Scott White's arrest. My brother Scott was killed almost 32 years ago. The New South Wales police have now just apprehended the man that they believe is responsible for his death. This is a very emotional day. Emotional for me, it's emotional for my family, my two sisters and my brother who love Scott dearly, my wife and my three kids who never got to know their uncle but admire him, not only because of his brilliance, but because he courageously lived his life as he wanted to. Scott would be very happy to see how far the gay community has come in 30 years toward living openly and freely as Scott believed everyone should. I hope the friends and families of the other dozens of gay men who lost their lives find solace in what's happened today. And I hope it opens the door 
to resolve some of the other mysterious deaths of men who have not yet received justice. Heartbreaking. Steve put his head in his hands at the end of that video and walked away. The pain, more than 30 years old, was still as raw and unbridled as it was on day one. A pain that will never leave this guy. I can say this because I have sat in a room with victims' families in the exact same situation, and to feel the energy of that pain exuding from their pores is not something you ever forget. Their lives are destroyed. Not long after he was arrested, it was revealed that Scott Philip White, who grew up in an extremely homophobic family, drumroll, drumroll, mm-hmm. was gay himself, Aha. but hadn't come out until many years after he murdered Scott Johnson. You know what? I had a sneaking suspicion about this because when you think about it, so if there's all these attacks happening against gay men in a gay hookup spot, what are you doing hanging out in a gay hookup spot if you are not gay? Even if you're just waiting to attack someone, there's there's something there. Yeah. And I mean, he's fighting repressed feelings and he's obviously, too, with six kids, he's overdoing things. <laughs> you know, he's over. He's just really got to prove himself time and again. Yeah. His bogan friend beating people up, drinking, right. talking about man stuff, soccer, football. Right. Ugh. Murder. Murder. Mm hmm. When the facts emerge, it was learned that Scott White met Scott Johnson at a hotel in the town of Manly, and they both walked to the cliff about 20 minutes away. Once there, police said, they now believe that Scott Johnson stripped off his clothing to participate in a sexual encounter with White. But instead, White violently punched Scott Johnson while at the top of the 160-foot cliff in Northhead, solely because Scott was gay. Scott fell from the cliff because of that strike. Scott White, the killer, was only 18 years old at the time. Here's Scott White admitting in 2022 how he murdered Scott Johnson. I just said to him that um, to get get him him and his mate off my back, I just said, oh, they took me to Northhead, went and had a look around. I said to him, I pushed the bloke, he went over the bridge, you know, and this and that was all full of rubbish. I said to him, I pushed, he punched me, I pushed him, and he went over the edge, and I went to grab him. But that was all, like I said, that was all full of shit, because I just had to say something to get these guys off my back. In that short clip of Scott White being interrogated by strike force's detectives, he admits to killing Scott Johnson, but also blames him for the crime somehow. This goes back to that victim blaming BS we talked about at the beginning of the episode. Oh, well, it was really his fault that I killed him. It's just bullshit. You know, this really, really, really enrages me because everything about all of this is wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. solved after 32 years. But look, everything about this thing has been wrong from the get go. And there's only one reason why. Bigotry. Yep. Yep. That that's the only reason. It's the reason he died. It's the reason that cops were indifferent when he died. It's uh, exactly. It's the sole reason for all of this bullshit. Yeah. And, And it just it's just unnerving to me to think about it. It's just it just. Anyway, 
During the sentencing phase of Scott White's court battle, Scott Johnson's sister, Terry, talked about how White had stripped her family of decades of peace, not to mention decades without Scott. That's such a good point, mm-hmm. right? You, you not only stripped us of Scott, but you stripped us of decades of not knowing, yeah. wondering. And here's her quote from that court appearance. The hateful person who killed Scott has been walking free on this earth for the past 32 years. 32 years that he took away from my baby brother. I believe Mr. White deserves life in prison. Scott's other sister, Rebecca, focused on how in the 1980s, it was society that had let down people who thought violence against gay men was acceptable. Quote, parents, brothers and sisters, teachers and classmates, authority, culture, somehow Mr. White's world reinforced that violence and even killing was okay and maybe those gay men weren't human. That is a profound tragedy, end quote. On May 2nd, 2022, Scott Philip White was given a maximum of 12 years and four months behind bars for Scott Johnson's murder. The fact that he pleaded guilty right before his trial was set to begin saved him, the judge said, from life behind bars. He had taken responsibility. He was 18 at the time. All factors that played into what seemed like a very light sentence for taking somebody's life. You can't see this, Phelps, because this is audio. My eyes are rolling so far back in my head right now. This man has been dead for 32 years, and the person who's been walking free this entire time gets 12 years? And four months. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. 12 years and four months. You're right. It's so much better that way. He should at least get a year for every day that Scott lived, 27 years. Seriously. At the least. At the very least. The court, in fact, did not even consider Scott's murder a hate crime. Listen to Justice Helen Wilson. It should be understood that the court is not sentencing a violent and aggressive young man for a targeted attack upon a gay man. Because of the lapse of time, the offender is no longer the same angry young man who raised his fists to another on the edge of a cliff. Neither is the court imposing sentence for a crime motivated by hatred for a particular sector of society. The evidence is too slender to support that approach. Really? Just look at what Scott White said to his wife. Is that not all the evidence one needs to conclude this was a hate crime? That's the backwards logic of this stuff is it's still a hate crime, even if you are also a member of the same group. It's still a hate crime if it is for the reason of you hate that individual and what they stand for. There's still injustice in this case. Yeah. And Scott's sister was right. I mean, the reason that White hated Scott Johnson is because he was gay. And that is a direct result of all the messaging around him that he got from his family, that he got from society. Like his sister absolutely called it right. She nailed it. She nailed Mm -hmm. it. And I just want to end by saying there are other unsolved deaths from the same region, same era, that need to be reinvestigated as well. As one writer put it in May of this year, 2022, quote, Johnson was just one victim in an epidemic of bashings, murders, and disappearances of homosexual men in Sydney. Some groups claim the numbers are over 100. Jeez. That's it for this week. Be safe, be aware, and please be kind. It doesn't cost anything. We'll see you next week. 
Sources for today's episode come from The Death of Scott Johnson, New South Wales Government Website, When Gangs Killed Gay Men for Sport, Australia Reviews 88 Deaths, Michelle Innes, January 30th, 2017, New York Times, Close to the Edge by Daniel Glick, Scott Johnson Murder Mystery Was Solved This Week, But Others Still Haunt Sydney by Paige Cockburn, ABC News Australia. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP, Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 